Now, we're going to start this season looking at Jesus' family tree, as I mentioned to the kids a few minutes ago. And I'm going to begin by reading the genealogy of Jesus that we find in the first chapter of Matthew, Matthew 1 to 7. Though I recognize that, uh, as a friend of mine, another pastor, used to call passages like these from the Bible, this is an ego passage. And I don't mean ego like that part of our uh, being. Ego is an acronym that stands for eyes glazing over. (laughs) Basically, I'm going to read the phone book for a few minutes. That's essentially what it comes down to. And yet, embedded here, I think, is something profound. Something profound about Jesus' story and something in turn I think we might discover that's profound about our own story as we are welcome here today too. So with that in mind, we turn to Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 to 17, the kind of passage that a pastor would normally assign to someone else to read, someone they don't like. But I've been practicing, so we'll see how it goes. Listen to God's word for us today. An account of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Aram, and Aram the father of Aminabad, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. Act 1, scene 1. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, that's a great name, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. Act 1, scene 2. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Salathiel, and Salathiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abuid, and Abuid the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azer, and Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mothan, and Mothan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary to whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. And so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Good and gracious God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing and acceptable to you, O Lord. For you alone are our rock and our redeemer. And let all God's people say, Amen. 
So this passage was chosen to open this theme of weeks for Advent and Christmas, called From Generation to Generation. As I mentioned, put together by a team of pastors and poets, artists from around the country. Uh, Much of our liturgy this season will be adapted from liturgy that one of their members, Pastor Sarah R. Speed, wrote. Uh, Images and symbols uh, and um, uh, imagery that we'll use in a lot of our publications and in worship uh, come from them as well. Uh, Even some of the hymns that we'll sing, including the hymn following the sermon today, new words to a familiar tune, uh, come from this team as well. That title that they use, From Generation to Generation, is taken from Mary's song, what we sometimes call the Magnificat in Luke chapter 1. This is how the team describes their hopes for us and putting together this series for Advent, they write, The stories, scriptures, and traditions of the Christmas season have been passed down to us throughout the generations. Many of us enter this season with a swell of memories and emotions as vast as the cultural and religious rituals that this holiday holds. Like a tapestry woven throughout time, the Christmas story weaves us in to remember how God has shown up for us in the past to continue the work of collective liberation, to behold the presence of God in flesh and bone today. As we read, this is that team, as we read through and studied the scriptures, a line from Mary's song of protest and praise gave us pause this year. And now they're quoting from Luke chapter 1, verses 48 to 50. Surely, Mary sings, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for the mighty one has done great things for me, and Holy is his name. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. There's that phrase. They invite, we encourage you to pay attention to each of the characters you'll be introduced to in this year's familiar narratives, and then ask, what did each person pass on or contribute? What can we learn from them, and what is our role now? What will we pass on to the next generations? In a way, this is picking up part of the theme that we introduced back on All Saints Sunday on November 6th, this idea about weaving our lives into the stories of those who have gone before us and knowing that our story will be woven into the lives of those who come after us. That's true for us, of course, but it's also true of Jesus, as we'll discover in just a few moments. Now, this idea about thinking through the generations of our lives, got Miriam and I thinking over this past week and doing a little looking and uh, talking about some of the generations in our own lives. Uh, I thought I'd share just a little bit of that with you this morning as an example. Uh, I found an old photo of me and my grandmother from Christmas. I think I'm about four in this picture. That was about as good as my hair ever looked, by the way. That's my mom's mom, Ruth Horton. Uh, That's us celebrating Christmas together. One of the Nelson traditions on my dad's side of the family, he had four siblings, was that all five families would get together every year at somebody's house on Christmas Eve. We'd all get to open one gift. Uh, I know some of you have that tradition too. I don't know where that comes from, one gift on Christmas Eve. Uh, And then we would all take pictures, of course, so that we could record the families growing up year after year. This is a picture of the Nelson family. From the early 70s, and yes, that is me in the red sweater. 
my mom uh, always hated the fact that I goofed up the family photo. And of course, you know, this is the age before digital photos where you didn't know how it was going to turn out until you got that film developed sometime in mid-January at the Walgreens, right? Uh, so that was us. Uh, we were also looking at uh, Miriam's family. This is a photo of some of the Dolans gathered together. And yes, that tiny squeezing out a smile tot at the bottom is Miriam. <laughs> Apparently she and I, as the youngest siblings in our family, both live into that role fully. Uh, it's probably good that the pastor nominating committee didn't see either of these photos before they invited us to come be here. So uh, it's just been fun to kind of look through photos of generations in our lives celebrating Christmas. Actually, uh, our friends the Parikas, Chris and Glenn Parika this year, had a wonderful idea for us, which was uh, to invite people from the church to bring a photo of generations of your family, whatever that means for you, celebrating Christmas. Uh, and maybe put them in a simple frame, and on Sunday mornings we would put them out in Shep Hall, and you could put a piece of tape or a post-it note on the back that says who it is uh, and maybe what year it's from. Uh, that way, on Sunday mornings, we could look through some of those together. I had planned to bring one of mine this morning, and of course, the printer in the office was out before I got here. So just imagine that I'm holding one up that I'm going to have out on Sunday morning. I'll say more about it in the weekly email this week. So be looking out for that and a special invitation for you to participate. I also thought about some of the things we receive from our previous generations in our lives. For me, uh, a wonderful gift that I received when Miriam and I met, I discovered that her late father, Richard Dolan, who had passed away long before Miriam and I met, had been an enthusiastic collector of Dickens Christmas Village pieces. And every year would set out this huge, spectacular display. It would take him forever to put it up and, of course, forever to put away as well. Even after he passed away, uh, her mom, Jackie, who many of you know here, uh, continued to add pieces to it. Well, it hadn't been up for several years, and when I learned about it, and Jackie discovered that I was also enthusiastic about this possibility, she said, well, would you like to take it home? I could almost hear Miriam's eyes rolling. <laughs> as I said, yes, I would love to have that. And so, uh, over the course of several trips, an empty suitcase would go as we visited her, and a full suitcase would come back, full of pieces of the Christmas village, which... I then figured out how to set up at home. It's been so fun to have. But I realized that only a couple of us get to fully enjoy it, right? We fully enjoy it at home. Yes. <laughs> and so many other people are missing out. So I thought as a way to share the gift of generations in my life, I would set up the Christmas village here at First Presbyterian this year. As some of you know, there's a wonderful display case outside of Shepherdson Hall. So uh, last week, I took a little time and crawled in there, and uh, Miriam and her mom, Jackie, came down to help, and we uh, slowly put it together. I think there's a picture of Jackie and I working on a little bit further iteration of that. Uh, and now this morning, as you go out for fellowship and throughout the season, uh, you'll be able to see uh, the Dickens Christmas Village. Um, again, just... Uh, a little wonderful way of thinking about, reflecting on, celebrating the gifts that we receive from those generations, in this case in a kind of tangible or practical way. Thanks for those photos. 
As we think about the generations that come before us and the impact they have on our lives, I was reminded this week of something that's called a genogram. And a genogram really is just a fancy term for kind of writing out one's family tree. Uh, that branch that Isaiah brought to remind us this morning. Now, sometimes therapists or counselors will use a genogram to help people understand and reflect on some of the things that have happened in their family history because, of course, we know that those things have an impact on us. The, the brokenness, um, the moments of inspiration and triumph, all of it together have an impact on us. They help to identify some of our values and relationships that have shaped our character over time. In fact, I'll often use a genogram with couples in premarital counseling and have them map out three or four generations and then use that to reflect on important themes in their family history. Themes like uh, faith and religion and how that's played out. Themes like gender roles and how women and men have played various roles in relationships. Themes like uh, finances and economics. Who has money and who doesn't and who fights about it or doesn't talk about it. Uh, and then especially uh, moments of uh, tragedy or um, unexpected circumstances, uh, addiction or an unexpected death or a divorce or some other brokenness in family history. And, and we do all of that not to judge any of it as being right or wrong. It simply is what it is but to recognize that all of those pieces from our family history impact us. They shape us. But they don't determine who we are or who we become. In other words, they describe us, but they do not prescribe us. We get to choose out of that context, out of that history then, what we learn from or what we turn from. But it still all shapes us in ways that are profoundly important. And I think, I think that's what Matthew's trying to get at. And taking all of the time and listing out these 42 generations, 14 and 14 and 14, for us to understand a little bit of Jesus' past. There's a theological dimension to be sure, but there's also a part not only of the sacred story, but of Jesus' family story that I think has something important to say to us. Because when we reflect on our family histories, we recognize that there are things there that have impacted us in ways that we want to bring forward and model, and things that we want to learn from and make other choices because of the challenges that some of our ancestors have faced. In going through some of these photos this week, I also came across a eulogy that my Aunt Ruthann, my mom's sister, had written for her father, my grandfather, Dwight Horton, back in 1993 when he passed away. And it was fascinating to read her reflections on his life, on my grandfather's life, who had been so important to me as well. She wrote, Dad, she's talking about her dad, my grandfather, Dad always used to tell us good judgment is the result of experience. Experience is usually the result of poor judgment. <laughs> and then... A couple months before he died, when he knew he was about to die, he wrote all of his kids, my mom and her siblings, including my aunt, a letter. And she read part of my grandfather's letter, which said, it's up to each of us in our own lifespan to either be a benefit or a deficit. I'd like to think that my final score will be on the plus side. My prayer is that I would leave this life a better place for having been here, 
And that's my hope for my descendants. And I'm grateful that it appears that's likely to happen. Each of you have many years left in your greatest adventure called life. There will be challenges, of course, but God will be rooting for you, and so will I. I'd like to think that that sense from my grandfather about the importance of our lives for future generations as well has been embedded in part of my DNA, too. When I look back on my family tree, on both the Nelson side and the Horton side, that's my mom's side of the family, I see, for example, an awful lot of people who were manual laborers, who worked hard lives right on the edge of survival, and who, because of those lives, so highly valued the possibility and the opportunity of an education that they made sure my brother and I were the first generation in our family history on either side to go to college so that we would have a different kind of possibility and opportunity in our lives. That has continued to profoundly impact me as I recognize the importance of an education in others' lives as well. Even here at First Press, many of our mission partners are connected to opportunities for education as a critical way to break the cycle of poverty. And so I know that that part of my family history continues to impact the legacy that I hope I will leave someday as well. On the other hand, because of the lives they lived, most of my family historically had very little opportunity for travel or any other kind of experience outside of their own narrow world. And as a result of that, I've turned from that part of my family history to embrace the possibility of learning from others' experiences, other cultures, other faiths, other traditions, uh, and have prioritized making sure that I'm immersing myself in a wide variety of settings so that I have a different kind of future than some of my uh, historic family had the opportunity for. So in each of our lives, I imagine, too, there are pieces we want to pull forward and pieces that we want to turn differently from in our history. And all of this brings us back to Matthew. What is Matthew trying to tell us in these opening 17 verses about Jesus' genogram, what it says about him, and what it tells us about his role in our lives. There is, of course, the fact that Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and wants to make sure that Jesus has the proper credentials right from the start to be the person that God has promised him to be. He is, after all, historically a son of Abraham, which means he is a true Israelite. His Jewish credentials are checked. And He's the son of King David, which means his credentials to royalty, in addition to his Jewishness, is also checked. Jesus the king, Jesus of the Jews, the king of the Jews. Where does that title come up again? Perhaps Matthew is foreshadowing a bit about how this story is going to turn out in the end. And it's also important to recognize that there's another event embedded in this narrative litany of humans, only one event, in fact, which in this translation is called the deportation to Babylon, that is the exile to Babylon. And it's curious that the exile almost becomes a human character in this litany of characters. And I don't think that that's accidental. I don't think it's just to mark a moment in history. I think Matthew is including the story of Babylon because it's also a reflection on what's happening in the current moment. 
Just as the Israelites lived under occupation in the past and came through that occupation with the promise of God back to be a people redeemed, even now as they live under the occupation of the Roman Empire, Matthew, I think, is actually making a political statement here that just as that past empire of Babylon would come and go, so this present-day empire of the Romans will come and go. It's not just a matter of if, but when God will make that happen. Though, as we know, it doesn't happen in the way that they might expect. Jesus will, though, be a liberator for his people, one that will liberate them to a new kind of freedom. But there are a lot of other names that are included, and it's curious to see some of the ones that are. Ones that could have easily been scrubbed out from a litany of names that we might have wanted to see a, a little more pure, a little more upbeat, a little more faithful in order to be the lineage, after all, of this Jewish king. There's the name of Manasseh, for example. Now, a quick read of some of the history from the books of Kings and Chronicles will remind us that Manasseh took the throne when he was 12. Though he would reign for 55 years, his reign was called in Scripture evil, just straight-up pure evil. As he rejected God, he uh, participated in sorcery uh, and human sacrifice, so much so that God would punish the people and send them into exile. But Manasseh's story doesn't end there. He eventually repents and returns to God. His story of transgression becomes one of transformation, of redemption, something important in Jesus' own history that will play out in his life and ministry too. And then perhaps the most curious thing of all is the fact that in this patriarchal lineage, there are so many women's names mentioned, and not just any women, but notice the women that are there. Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and the wife of Uriah, Scripture says, which we know is Bathsheba. I wonder if her name has been left out because it's even too painful for the Israelites in this moment, for Matthew, to remember the horror of what happened to Bathsheba as she was abused in that relationship with David. And yet even in that experience, and in the sexual assault of Tamar and the sexual assault of Rahab, we get stories in which these women's lives, women, by the way, who are Gentiles, that is, outsiders like Ruth, who become embedded in and interwoven in the story of God's purposes. Outsiders who are not only welcomed in, but have a profound role to play. And what that will say about the kind of person Jesus will be, the kind of ministry that Jesus models for us in our lives today, in our story. This week I was reading the reflection of Susan Andrews. Uh, pastor Susan Andrews is a lifelong Presbyterian pastor who for a while served as the moderator, that is the highest elected office in our Presbyterian denomination. As she reflects on Matthew's genealogy, she writes, Tracing 42 generations all the way back to Abraham, we travel through both triumph and tragedy, exultation and exile, lostness and foundness. What we discover are patterns that define the very providence of God. Gentiles who are welcomed, sinners who are changed, transgressions nurturing transformation, fear fueling courage. It is out of this heritage 
both the ghastly parts and the good parts, that Jesus is born. The weaknesses, the brokenness in that family tree form strong branches upon which God brings forth the fruit of the incarnation. We worship here in this genealogy a God of surprises who cannot be captured by precedent or prediction. After all, there's four women who make the list, three of them who are victims, and yet all of them who play a redemptive role in God's unfolding drama of salvation. Are we then not surprised that God uses what culture abuses to plant life in a broken world? Do we wonder why Jesus is so predisposed to love the marginal and despised among us that such a surprising compassion is simply a part of Jesus' DNA? All of these aspects of Jesus' history that we see pulled forward into the ministry that he will live out, the ministry that he models for us to live out in our lives today, for us to consider how that history is also a part of our story too. By prefacing the story of Jesus with such a rich and sometimes ridiculous genealogy, Matthew is setting the stage for what is a rich and sometimes ridiculous power of the gospel story, the story that we will continue to reflect on over the next several months. Jesus' genealogy, as presented by Matthew, does tell us something important about who he is, an Israelite, and who he has promised to become, a king, and it also provides the full spectrum of Jesus' ancestors' human experience, both the brokenness and the beauty, all of which shape the kind of person Jesus will be, all of which model for us the kind of person that we are called to be. So friends, today, we're invited to reflect on the generations that have come before and brought us to this place. Consider how their lives are informing yours. Decide how you will learn from and live out that past in a way that will positively impact your future and the generations that come after you. During this Advent journey, we're invited to pay attention to each of the characters we'll reflect on in Scripture and ask what did they pass on or contribute, what can we learn from them, what is our role now, and what will we pass on as well. That's our theme this year, from generation to generation, reminding us of the ways that our lives, our histories, our actions, our stories are all interconnected and woven together like these beautiful tapestries. Remembering that the work of God is always unfolding in and through us. Our past gives birth to us and shapes us, but it doesn't control us. Our history describes us. It doesn't prescribe the choices we make for the future that only God holds for us. We're adopted, aren't we, into God's future, new creatures in Christ. So this Advent, remember that you, your whole story and your whole history, belong to a story etched into the wrinkles of time, to generations that have come before and will come after, and to a love that will not let you go. Amen.